This podcast brought to you by TechSmith. More A3 is software that helps you see things from your customer's point of view, so you can make things that are truly fast, powerful, and easy to use. By BlackBot, making the world a better place by providing technology solutions and support to nonprofit organizations around the world. By OptimalSort, with an elegant user interface, powerful analysis, and outstanding support, OptimalSort can help you run card sorts better than you ever thought possible. By PowerMapper, mapping your site has never been easier. PowerMapper extracts links from each page of your site until it's mapped your entire site, providing you with a complete inventory. By Axure, enabling information architects and user experience professionals to design efficiently, experience their designs, and clearly communicate them, ensuring a more useful and usable application. And by Boxes and Arrows. Since 2001, Boxes and Arrows has been a peer-written journal promoting contributors who want to provoke thinking, push limits, and teach a few things along the way. For other events happening all over the world, be sure and check out events.boxesandarrows.com. Experience design is evolving in both discipline and practice as more people communicate and engage with media. In this presentation, independent design professional Jason Kunish examines working with patterns, diagramming and prototyping tools, code frameworks like Rails and Drupal, and usability testing eight-year-olds. Jason also looks at the lessons learned and where he draws the boundaries between a firm's design principles and the tenets of a particular. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. Hi. Thanks, everybody, for being here. And thank you to the IDEA volunteers and to uh, Jorge and Russ for the opportunity to speak. Uh, my name is Jason. Uh, I'm here mostly as a uh, presenter today. Uh, unlike probably most of the rest of the presenters, uh, you probably haven't heard of me. I've worked pretty much in relative anonymity, probably like many of you, uh, throughout my career. Uh, I've got a you know, history of hard work, uh, some successes and some failures. I'm going to talk about both uh, to you today. Uh, my background is mostly in English lit, educational psychology, and uh, playing music and sort of hacking on various things. Uh, I sort of spent my career earlier on as sort of a junior taxonomist at a legal publisher, and then sort of went through a journey to a startup you know, designer and JavaScript developer, to a big consultancy, to a small consultancy, to Orbitz, and now back out to another consultancy on my own. Uh, this is a story about that journey and where I found consistent themes in my work uh, about organization, context, and process. Uh, your mileage may vary, and I'd like to hear more about that. So today's talk is in three parts. You know, primarily, how do we take context into account when we do design? Uh, mostly in terms of both physical and digital spaces. Second, it's about how does context inform our practice and our day-to-day -day culture in setting up uh, a business. And then third is, as you've read, some aspirational crap. So <laughs> moving right along, uh, I studied Eliot in college, and uh, Eliot was fascinated by the work of a skepticist philosopher named F.H. Uh, Bradley. And Bradley was convinced that experience was essentially incommunicable. In other words, uh, we're both sharing somewhat of an experience right now, but my perspective is really different from yours. And when you go home and try to explain to people what you saw at this conference or what it was like, you really won't be able to quite do that in a way that really carries the, the communication forward or really gets to the essence of the experience. And that's you know, kind of a problem that we share as experienced designers or information architects or whatever you'd like to call us. So you know, today we'll be looking at context sort of through two lenses both the context of the people using the products that we design and also uh, the context in which we produce our work. One other aspect of Elliot that's kind of fascinating is he's sort of the first one to address 
uh, the modern via the postmodern. In other words, he's the first guy to look at this notion of sort of remix culture, right? And so when you look at things like mashups, Eliot sort of goes through Western literature back in the, the 30s and 40s and sort of takes the same sort of theme towards, uh, you know, kind of remixing different cultural ideas and quotes to create something new. So I think it's, you know, of interest that 80 years later we're doing sort of the same thing. One last slide sort of setting some context for what we're doing. Uh, nearly all the work we do really involves, you know, both realms, right? It's both a physical and a digital experience. And there's little really on the internet that doesn't have some sort of direct model in real life, except for maybe, you know, entertainment or gaming or virtual worlds. And, you know, McLuhan wrote a long time about how everything we do in media is sort of an extension of ourselves and our capabilities. So, you know, uh, Mr. Armano there referred to Twitter previously. If you look at Twitter, you know, what would be the analog equivalent of Twitter? You know, probably like a CB radio, right? You can sort of tune to a channel and broadcast to people, and other people can sort of tune in. And that's almost the equivalent of what we're doing here today, we're gathering some like-minded people together and sort of discussing things, you know, in person. Now, the, the difference with something like Twitter is if you extend the reach so far out and create experiences so novel in terms of what we can actually do, it ends up creating sort of unprecedented experiences for us within reality, right? So suddenly today we'll be meeting people whom we've, you know, followed on Twitter or read their blogs, and now for, you know, the first time we'll actually be meeting them physically and we'll have a great more deal of context than you know, was previously available to us in doing this sort of thing. These first few pieces of work I'm going to show you were done at a consultancy run by MBAs. So the products made sense economically, but oftentimes the experiences were a bit uh, off. So this first one is a product called Fast Frog. The notion was that you went through a mall and uh, you picked up a PDA at a kiosk and you went around and you scanned a bunch of products and you went back to the kiosk and you slapped this thing down and it created a wish list that you could then share online. You could go home and sort of edit or add notes to these things and share them out with different people. And, you know, it, this scenario probably could have started in many different ways and been a lot more successful, but it started off with the fact that malls were very afraid of the Internet, and generally good product design doesn't come as a result of fear. So <laughs> uh, one of the biggest things that we saw here was that the context really affected the experience, right? In other words, what people ended up doing was they walked right past the kiosk. They really didn't care because it didn't address their needs. You know, you don't go to the mall to sort of assemble a list. You go to the mall to either browse aspirationally or to shop. And these things weren't, you know, what FastFrog actually did for you. Here's a couple of screenshots of, you know, what the online app was. You know, given that it was aimed at teens, you know, we, we picked VariX as a font, believe it or not. Uh, but it sort of shows you some of the, some of the screenshots of that. This is another uh, product we did a little bit later in 2001 and 2002 with a company called Transworld Entertainment. Uh, they run a, a brand called FYE, and we built both a, uh, a kiosk and a listing and viewing station, which you see here, and a website. And this product was generally pretty successful. And I think the big difference was that this thing addressed what people wanted to do in space and then allowed them to carry that experience home. In other words, when you walk into a store, you know, these guys had the same problem as Tower had, right? They've got tons of dead product. It's all sitting there. You can't really experience it. You look at it, you can look at the packaging, and that's all you can really do. Well, these devices were made so that you could actually take the devices or take the uh, you know, product, walk up to the devices, scan it, and then listen to a little bit of the music or see a little bit of the video. So it made it sort of come alive for people. 
if you were a record store geek in the 80s, you might remember some of the uh, huge books of uh, albums and CDs not in the store. You'd have to you know, sort of page through that book and sort of pick one out and say, I'd like to order this. Uh, the kiosk was an effort to sort of get towards that long tail so you could go in and type in a title and then actually order it uh, online from within the store and then have it shipped to your house. So again, you know, it's really similar concept to what we did previously, but the context was different, right? It addressed the people's needs, and so it became successful. Um, I wanted to have video of these two things, but actually the people in the store kicked me out as I was trying to make it. So we're at point A, and if you want, you can walk up to point B and uh, you can take a look at them. They're actually still in existence today. Uh, in any event, uh, I left the big consultancy for a small consultancy uh, when I went to grad school, and we left behind most of the process and most of the, the context that I had there, right? We had these huge teams producing things on multi-million dollar budgets, and suddenly we were a really small team, and we were running on really small projects. And here's an example of where we didn't actually address things technically, but just through a little bit of design, and we made something just as successful. Uh, the Field Museum is uh, just down the street yonder, and they wanted a uh, store uh, for their online you know, customers, who are relatively rare. And the context that most of the people came in was uh, one of two things. They were either actually leaving the mall, or leaving the store, pardon me, the museum, the thing, whatever it is. They're leaving the museum, and they thought about something that they had seen within one of the stores there, and they wanted to go back online and uh, go purchase it. And the other thing was sort of, uh, they were going online maybe to purchase a membership for an upcoming visit. So most of what we did here as part of our process was actually going through the museum and sort of seeing both the, the different stores and the way they were arranged close to the different displays, and then seeing the actual, uh, you know, kind of behind the scenes of, of the way they fulfilled and the way that they did their, their work. And then we basically went through and realized, well, the thing that they're doing is they're actually making many of the stores close to the exhibits have more items that are you know, related to that exhibit. So then we made the actual uh, site kind of follow that same you know, focus. A lot of the work I did at Orbitz was then again, you know, sort of a, a kind of ran the gamut. Uh, being there early on, we did we followed a really loose process. It was pretty hinky. We did whatever worked. You know, sometimes we were taking comps of, from Photoshop and just marking things up in Visio and spitting them out, drawing things on whiteboards. Eventually, uh, as orbits matured, you know, we got closer to you know, I think 40 million plus registered users. And what ended up happening was, you know, our process got more and more staid. So suddenly we went from, you know, kind of being loose and agile to something that was, you know, fairly waterfall in nature, and we, you know, deal with business requirements, and you know, we had a, a complete library of patterns and all the different things that really, uh, you know, allowed us to do business for all those people. But on the other hand, we sort of lost something about the way in which we did our work, and we got overtaken by things like kayak. Uh, you know, one of the things to mention about, you know, touch points for customers here is that. You know, with travel, there's always lots of touch points. And one of the first things we sort of realized was that the website wouldn't be able to address all the things people needed, right? As you're at the airport or you're in transit, um, there's many things you're not going to turn to a website for. And so we had to do things like care alerts and introduce, you know, notions of mobility and uh, voice interaction. And, you know, we oftentimes listened to what we did within the call centers and listened to how people had, you know, struggled. And most of the time, we ended up reworking the way the call centers work as opposed to reworking the way that the website worked to sort of address their needs. 
Uh, here's old Miyamoto Musashi having his fortune told, and uh, here's where I transition a bit into sort of the second topic we talked about. Uh, as I mentioned, Orbitz was so mature in its process, it felt like you could kind of take both hands off the wheel, and that didn't really suit me as much anymore personally. Um, I'm channeling a little Donald Schoen via Bill Buxton, but there's a useful distinction here between sort of problem solving and problem setting. And initially, we had done a lot of problem setting work. In other words, determining what were the features and what were the products and what were the ways to address the needs of the market. And we had sort of transitioned into more problem solving, which was we were more downstream in the process and viewed more as a resource and maybe as a leadership role. And I think that's always something to sort of be aware of in your own career. You know, there's a variety of places and contexts within which we work, but it's always, you know, probably best to try to strive towards being a leader, even if that means you can fail. So, you know, it came to this point, and I said, all right, I'm out. And I didn't really have too much of a plan as to what to do next. So I thought, well, I'll be a contractor for a bit and see what happens. One of the first places I worked with was a place called uh, The Point. It's sort of a social uh, media a collective um, the idea is that you can come on here and find people who feel similarly about you know, situations with companies or events or activities and sort of make a campaign and have them sort of coalesce around, uh, you know, an action. Um, the biggest design challenge here was something that kind of strikes activist groups in reality as well, which is that, you know, like open source projects, there's kind of a committed core of true believers, then there's a bunch of hangers-on. And, uh, you know, the design challenge is probably how to induce the hangers-on to take more action. So after leaving here, uh, I sort of had a, a crossroads again where I needed to sort of pick up some partners and figure out a way to actually move forward uh, as a business. Because as a contractor, you know, you really, again, don't have the means to actually exercise leadership or create a culture of design. Right. As a group or an organization, you get a little bit more of that kind of power and a little bit more ability to sort of address the way in which you know, needs are met. One of the clients I'd worked with as a contractor came back and asked us to do more work as a studio. And it's a company called Vibes. They produce lots of different programs. Here's one of them, which is you know, at uh, US Cellular Field. Um, Vibes' problem was that they had many different types of interactions and many different types of uh, both programs and contexts, right? Here's uh, some sort of event where they're actually having a, a kind of a game or a puzzle. And so the people who could be using these tools could be anybody from uh, packaged goods companies or radio DJs or concert and event planners uh, like here. And so our job was sort of to drill through all that complexity and drill through all these different types of users and figure out, you know, how do you actually see what the commonality is out of, out of these different people. Uh, they also did some TV ads. Uh, one notable one was that, uh, you know, they did the work for the Super Bowl Bears. Um, the most uh, commonly texted response to this was uh, Rex Grossman sucks, who was the uh, quarterback of the losing team that year. Uh, here's a quick uh, screenshot of the way of uh, some of the work that we did uh, in terms of wireframes. So given, you know, Vibes had the technical capabilities and the domain knowledge, it was really simply uh, means of making their products more compelling and sort of uh, combining the different ways that these pieces work together. One of the other folks we've worked with recently is LeapFrog, and they uh, they sort of set their strategy by you know, having some strong leadership about the value of design. And so here it was really easy for us to sort of plug into their process. And even though they didn't have much of one, you know, being sort of a, a West Coast kind of lazy fair company, uh, it was really easy for us to go through 
and uh, sort of you know help them kind of formalize what they do. And I think uh, it's one of the big value adds that we have as experienced designers is the ability to sort of uh, figure out in in all these different contexts what's the process that can actually work for us going forward to to get some good results. Um, you know, probably our greatest challenge was to design for kids in that, you know. Many things you take for granted, like addition, uh, don't really work for them, especially in the lower end of the age range. Um, so here you see a picture of my daughter with a couple of the things that we worked on toy-wise here. And I don't have internet, so I'm going to stop for a second and show you sort of an overview. It's a branding piece, I'll warn you, or a marketing piece, but it's pretty good to describe the concept. So basically you have a game, you have a little toy like this, they go through age ranges from four on up to 12 years old, and it has an actual USB connection to it. So it records in a scary Big Brother type way, but for good purposes, all the things that the kids do. And in doing that, you get a profile of what the child actually learns, right? What they're good at, what they're bad at. You can then take that thing, and eventually you'll see here in a moment, you can plug it into your computer. And then on doing that, it sort of uploads all the information. Now, there's a lot of different context here because there's sort of parents involved with it and kids involved with it. We built out this system here, which is a little reward system. We also worked on this art game. But you know, the majority of what we learned from doing this was not only how many handoffs there were back and forth between the two different uh, you know, groups, but also just how fluent the kids were with all the metaphors that we have in terms of common desktop pieces. You know, we saw eight-year-olds who had better literacy than my mom as far as, you know, understanding the sort of the WIMP, uh, you know, Windows interface mouse pointer kind of hierarchy. Right now, we're working with Microsoft's Health Solutions Group uh, and their research center and some experts in the healthcare field to create this application, which is uh, an integration of place and space in, a, in sort of a novel way. Um, you enter in a lot of information about yourself and your family, and in return, uh, when you go to your doctor's appointments, you're actually able to sort of coalesce all that information, print it out, and sort of increase the dialogue or the, the uh, richness of the dialogue that you have with your care providers. Um, you know, given the variety of systems that doctors have in their offices, we found that a technical solution wasn't even really possible or desirable. Uh, instead, you know, we're trying to make a replacement that's compelling for moms to track their information now, you know, which is they basically do it via back of envelopes, you know, calendars on the fridge, or, you know, or not at all. And so we decided the easiest way to do this was to create something solid for them to print and go from there. Uh, we've done quite a bit of work with startups recently, which has allowed us to sort of work our own ideas on process out with people more willing to look at us as partners and vendors. And it's also been sort of key to helping us uh, maintain our sanity. Uh, in the past few years, the writings of Paul Hawken has done the same. Uh, you know, he teaches us in growing a business that you have to learn to do business like a garden, so making small incremental changes and adjustments as you go. And that concept has been really essential to us in terms of finding out what is the right process for us in approaching the work with all these different people. You know, we, uh, working with such a large variety of clients really produced a lot of solutions that were linked around audiences like moms or children or consumers but the different sizes and styles and values of the organizations we worked with really left us feeling a bit schizophrenic. You know, so as a team, you know, right now there's four of us, and we have a small office that we use to sort of collaborate a few times a week. The rest of the time we work remotely. Uh, we use things like Basecamp and, and uh, Dropbox to basically share files and kind of keep up to date. 
And you know, we, we try to travel fairly rarely to the clients and generally you know, don't produce paper handouts. And I'll get, get a bit more into that later. Uh, but you know, we try to focus more on interactivity and prototyping. And uh, you know, I think that's, that's about it there. But the big question was, you know, at the end of a year and a half of doing this, you know, who, who are we? You know, and, and what do we do? And I mean this for our firm, but I also mean this for us as a community. I think Jorge sort of alluded to it earlier, is like, what do we label ourselves and what do we call ourselves? And you know, as a new firm, this was especially daunting for us. And we sort of let it drift for a while and followed that sort of Hawkin dictate of, you know, plant it and see what comes up. But eventually we had to sort of figure out, you know, where we offered value. Uh, and it's a little bit difficult when our, our you know, sort of career focus or our sort of our practitioner focus is sort of a bit of everything or nothing. And I, this next slide, you know, shows this a little bit. Uh, you know, often we use words, which is sort of a, a fairly poor form of sketching to, uh, to kind of communicate what we do. Now, all the words that you see up here are actually culled from uh, 913 to 915 when we had another one of those moments on the IAI mailing list, which was, what is it exactly that we do and how do we define it? Right, so these are all those words. And at the end of the day, when you look at it, there's a lot of different types of things up there, right? There's experience and discipline and information, organization. There's lots of words that people would probably use from other groups, you know, interaction designers or experience designers or usability practitioners that would probably feel somewhat similar. So what ends up happening is it leaves us feeling a bit defensive because we can't easily articulate what it is that we do, right? And so here's a quote from Freed that generated quite a bit of comments on one of the, the blogs of a UX practitioner out there. And if you look at that screenshot on the right, that whole list is a running set of comments that came back again in trying to define what we do and sort of, you know, what it is and how. And, uh, you know, the funny part about this is Freed basically said we'll never hire a specialist is six months later they, they hired a specialist who's a, a system administrator when they, they grew to eight people. And the, the point I'm making here is not to call out Jason Freed, but rather to say, as you grow, right, and as the group in which you're working grows, there's, it's a natural inclination for the people on the team to become more and more specialized. And we see that over and over again in terms of you know, the different environments where we've worked. So, but I think sometimes, you know, our thinking has gotten a little uptight about what we are and what we do. It's time to go bowling. Uh, so let me suggest Rubrico Lairs. And, this is, for, again, I'm kind of going back to my literature roots, but this is from Levi Strauss's book, uh, Le Pensee Sauvage, which is either The Wild Pansies or, or The Savage Mind, uh, depending on which way you want to translate it. But I, I think, you know, his point in The Savage Mind is that there's sort of two groups of people. There's sort of bricolaires and engineers, and the engineers are the ones who sort of really have the scientific methodology, and the bricolaires they're sort of crafty and they're sort of tricky. And what they do is they recombine existing things in new and, and different ways. And I think you know, this sort of serves as a metaphor for us in, in two ways. One, I think this is how most people actually approach technology. And in the other way, I think this is how we actually shape our discipline. Most of the things that we do are things that we've called from other disciplines, be it library science or interaction design or industrial design or human factors. So I think there's a great presentation out there by Matt Milan which, in which he sort of refers to uh, it as thievery. So I'm, I'm trying to, to upgrade us a little bit with a little pretentious French. But 
At the end of the day, you know, when, when we say IA frees as designers, and we both sort of mean bricolaires, which are people that offer value by being able to create some process and some organization around you know, these problems of how you get you know, human needs sort of organized and, and put into sort of simple, uh, you know, simple interfaces. So I think that you know, the five things that we often have to look at ourselves in terms of determining our own context is you know, the, the old journalism questions. You know, who do we work with? What do they do? Where are we located? How many of us are there? And why do we work in this way? And if you reflect back on those questions, that tells you oftentimes a lot about what you are doing right and what you're doing wrong in terms of your process. So being from a small company, I'm going to take a line from Steve Martin and encourage you to get small. Uh, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the design ecosystem here. So this is sort of part three. And part three is just that right now the ecosystem's expanding so fast we can't really respond with old labels for ourselves or for other disciplines. Forty years ago, you know, Engelbart in 68 launched the mother of all demos and he had, you know, the mouse and, you know, some, some early forms of word processing and cut and pasting. And then in the 70s, you know, we got Bill Shatner hawking the, the VIC-20. And in, you know, 84, we learned that 84 wouldn't be like 84, but, you know, it, it would be like 2008 because we still do have a lot of the same types of, um, you know, working uh, models in front of us as far as the WIMP. Like the Windows interface mouse pointer isn't going away. But on the other hand, there's a lot of things that are a lot more playful and that are a lot different than any of the interactions we've had before. And, you know, design is bringing this sort of power to many different types of interfaces. You know, guitars uh, pretty much resisted digitalization, you know, for over 20 years, right? You saw MIDI on the keyboards, but you never really saw MIDI used very successfully on the guitar. And again, sort of addressing needs and context, uh, it was because guitar players didn't want to sound like trumpet players. You know, what they wanted to sound like was any type of guitar that they could think up. And so suddenly, you know, there's, there's this adoption of this digital, you know, piece in here. And eventually, you know, it gets simplified down until pretty much anybody can do it. I think in some ways, you know, we're sort of dancing on the surface of a new era as we move forward and we see an Internet of Things come about and many new forms of digital technology come about, either in terms of play but also in terms of, you know, sort of getting things done. And so we sort of have to balance that potential against our use of a common language. And I think right now, you know, within our field, we see a lot of emphasis on pattern languages and sort of this, this commonality. And, you know, Alan Cooper wrote uh, in The Inmates Are Running the Asylum that we sort of threw away 20 years of desktop technology when we went to the web. And, you know, in the past few years, what we've seen is a lot of platforms, you know, trying to, you know, work really quickly to sort of bring that back. So here's, you know, some examples, Dojo, jQuery, the UE, Drupal, Rails, you know, Microsoft and Nokia just announced recently supporting jQuery and sort of establishing this as more and more of a library for interaction. And these developments are great because they're going to help people like that eight-year-old be able to successfully navigate from the desktop over to the web. Uh, and for many of our clients, especially the startups, we sort of stress, you know, the best thing to do is kind of to go out and steal best practices. Right? Like there's not much we can do in terms of you know, creating a login box or an autocomplete text field that's actually going to be innovative, but simply take those things that you know are innovative about what you're actually offering and spend your design time on those and spend the rest of the time you know, working on the things that are fairly common and that you can pick up from a library like this. 
But you know, that said, you know, these modes of interaction are also bringing forward some, some sort of baggage, and most of the baggage that we have is in terms of accessibility and multimodality, which you know, we never really baked into the desktop, and now we're sort of you know, not baking into the web platforms. I can be clear in saying I think we don't do this, right? This is sort of industrial design. But we do this, uh, you know, I, I either had to have an iPod or an iPhone example, right? Every, every presentation needs one. Uh, but the, the thing I'd like to highlight about the iPhone is this, you know, I think the reason why the iPhone is successful is not because of anything um, that, they, that they did do at the outset, it's what they didn't do. If you look at Windows, if you look at Java, if you look at Flash, all their ideas were around taking sort of a, a really big toolkit and cramming it down into a mobile phone. Right? And Apple sort of took the other route around. They said, no, we're going to create a new set of interactions and a new set of design language and, and visualization choices that will be appropriate for the device. And I think it's a really powerful example uh, because especially you know, the more that we work in the web and we see these frameworks come out, there's always going to be that tension in the way we work. And so we have to sort of innovate our way out. Now I'm going to detour one more time, sort of uh, give you a, a pitch that, again, you can mock me for later. Uh, if you look at the history of design, Ken Garland is probably one of the first people to sort of put forward uh, a manifesto, basically saying that we need to use the things that we know how to do, given that we're a bunch of smart, dedicated people, and sort of repurpose them and highlight the human element, element pardon me, uh, over you know, pure marketing. It sort of got re-brought forward in 2000 with a new group of signatories, and so there's still a lot of power behind this type of idea. Um, Brian Maggi is a friend of mine. He introduced me to Victor Papanek's work, uh, and here's a, a, a quick shot of his uh, design for the real world. He sort of has a sketchbook a notion on one of the pages. And he also has a, a piece called The Green Imperative that came out in 95, which I think is simply fascinating in that he talks about sort of uh, what a surgical team is for product innovation. So if you're familiar with Frederick Brooks, he's got the sort of surgical team for sort of the coders, and it's a manifesto as far as how you do small teamwork. Uh, you know, in The Green Imperative, Papanek talks about the need for sort of industrial designers and engineers and, you know, interaction designers and lawyers and this whole sort of team around kind of figuring out the way in which we can actually make products going forward. And, you know, for us, again, in terms of figuring out our own context, um, you know, he, his approach of education and consultation with clients that's both respectful of their desires and the environment and his studio's bottom line has been really inspiring. Uh, I'll also pause here to mention uh, Yves Chouinard from uh, Patagonia. One of the, the key things that we found in running our own practice is uh, his notion of what's called the 515, which is at the end of every week, you take 15 minutes, you write down what you've done for the week. It should take no longer than five minutes for somebody else to read. And it's a fantastic way when you're working remote, sort of keeping the team synced. You know, we're a pretty small team. We can go through those in about a half an hour and, and know all the things we've done, great and small. You know, I'd be remiss without bringing up Bruce Sterling's work here. Uh, he's pushing for sort of an irresistible demand for a global atmosphere upgrade uh, through the use of spines, which are sort of space-time objects. In other words, as this Internet of Things keeps moving forward, the notion that, you know, pretty much everything we can find is going to be wired in some way and talking to us about its status or what it knows. One of the companies that's doing work on, on this idea is Open Spine. Uh, another one is Arduino. And 
you know, I think what we're going to see happening even more and more is this notion of, you know, integration between, you know, the physical reality and the Internet. It's going to present sort of a new realm of problems, but also some opportunities for us as practitioners. Finally, I'll, I'll bring up uh, Valerie Casey's work with the Designers Accord, sort of talking about client education and making sure that, you know, what we do is actually, um, you know, sort of represented within this space of sustainability and, and environmentally friendly uh, work. And I'll leave you with an example of a really simple uh, version of this. Uh, the Light Blue Line is a project to address a fairly uh, complex interaction or uh, information uh, problem. You know, we all know global warming is a problem, but we don't see the results of it every day, so we typically don't think about it. So what's the way in which we can bring this into our own context? Well, these folks in Santa Barbara figured out that maybe if we took a look at how far the water line would actually extend within our town should the global ice caps melt, we'll then go and paint that line around town. Right? So they started to do that until the people on the wrong side of the line who had the really expensive houses on the beach, which would soon be underwater, <laughs> kind of got wind of it. And then, uh, and then that, that, that notion stopped pretty rapidly. <laughs> But the, the point is that they, they created a dialogue throughout their entire community with something as simple as an idea and some paint. And I think when we look at you know, the, the world of technology, we tend to think that all of our solutions come from technology. But I, I think, in fact, there's a lot simpler solutions for many of the problems that we have. Uh, here in the inset, you see they're trying to do the same thing in New York. And I kind of wonder about uh, how well their results will play out as well. Uh, Again, I'd like to give special thanks to Jorge and Russ and the, the idea of conference volunteers and organizers, my team, my friends, and family. And I'd like to thank you for your consideration.